Well, good morning. Good to see you. Last week, we just said a little bit about the uh, rather semi-anonymous man who's at the center of this story of Colossians. His name is Epaphras. He was a resident in this town. I mean, it was only a town like our town, to be honest. And he went up to the capital regional city, Ephesus, which was a huge city, a bit like London, and about a similar distance to London is from here. And then he met Paul, and then he came back and started a church. And we described that story uh, last week, and many of you were here when I explained the extraordinary circumstances of what exactly happened. But I want to go back to the city of Ephesus again. Because here we are in Colossae. Paul is writing a letter. He's never been there. There's some problems in the church. He's sending Epaphras back to the city with a letter to help them with their problems. But we need to wind back a little bit in order to understand a bit more of this story. So let's go back in our minds to this city of Ephesus, a huge regional city near the Turkish town of Izmir today. And what Paul did there was something that he hardly managed to do anywhere else in in all his preaching in all the years. He dug down deep in Ephesus and he said, right, I'm staying here for some substantial length of time and it says he stayed for two years. And he did one of the cheekiest things you could possibly do. Because in Ephesus, up on the hillside, was a simply enormous temple. One of the wonders of the ancient world. It was one of the major religious centers of that whole area, of the whole province of Asia. In fact, it was the major religious center. And the goddess who was worshipped there went by the Greek name Artemis, the goddess particularly of fertility, human fertility, animal fertility, the fertility of the land, something important to everybody. Up on the hill, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people came from all over the area regularly to worship Artemis, our regional god, the goddess who will give us children, fertility, security. It was such a big volume of people that tradesmen gathered around. Do you know when there's a religious shrine that tradesmen gathered? Have you ever noticed that? Wherever you go in the world, maybe it's a Hindu temple or a Buddhist temple or a Catholic cathedral, there's always a guy there wanting to make a quick buck. Okay, well, in in Ephesus, it was the silversmiths. They had a really neat trade of making little miniatures of Artemis and little miniature shrines. So you could go and worship her, and then on the way back, you pay, pay a little bit of money, and you can have this beautiful little, little trinket you can take home to your regional town. Can you imagine that? Made out of silver. And you pay a fair penny for that. Well, the cheeky thing that Paul did was he hired a lecture hall within a few hundred yards of the biggest shrine in the region. For two years, he had exclusive use, as far as we can tell, of this lecture hall. 
So people are literally passing by on their way up to the great shrine by their hundreds, perhaps by their thousands. And Paul has got an alternative show in town. He's got the lecture hall and he's proclaiming, oh, by the way, there's only one Lord. There's only one King. There's only one God. And his name is Jesus and he came from Judea and he died and he rose again. And by the way, I can prove it because he heals the sick today. And he destroys all the evil darkness that comes over your lives. And you know, people gathered to Paul by their hundreds. He performed miracles. In fact, now think of this. There's the shrine and the tradesman. There's Paul over here. So, some people were so convicted of their sin that they bought all their occult books, scrolls, all their witch doctrine, all their astrology, everything else. And just outside the lecture hall of Tyrannus, they said they, they had an impromptu uh, bonfire without permission for this, from the civic authorities. Now imagine doing that in Shrewsbury. You'd be in, in clink, wouldn't you? Now as time went on, the tradesmen really got annoyed because trade was down, because Paul was up and Paul was sticking around. We wish that Jewish demagogue would get out of town, but he didn't. He stuck there for two years. Every day, it says, he was there. Same man, same message, really got up their noses. So they decided in their trade union meeting to get the crowds behind them because there was plenty of Artemis worshippers still in, uh, around. So they formed a huge crowd and they gathered in the stadium, so to speak, the amphitheater, you can see it's still there today. And the civic magistrates had to come and everybody had to come out and, and Paul was there, uh, Paul was, wanted to be there and his followers said, no, you better not go in there, you're going to get killed. So they actually prevented him going in. And they got this shout going, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! But as the magistrates came and said, You're overreacting, come on, he's only just, he's only just lecturing down the road. He hasn't said anything particularly about Artemis and he calmed it all down. But thousands of people had believed in Jesus. And when I say thousands, I don't believe that's an exaggeration. Paul's church planting was usually just tens, twenties, thirties, fifty, or a hundred. But in Ephesus, it was thousands. Now, we know that Epaphras was one of them from Colossae, and he went back and planted the church, and that's what we said last week. Now, what I want to say is, we get a glimpse in this story of a spiritual dynamic that operates in the world. It's an unseen dynamic that certain dark spiritual powers operate particularly in certain areas. We're never encouraged to identify them and analyze them and map them like some people do, by the way. 
But intuitively from the story, we know that in some places there's a certain type of darkness and oppression that comes from a religious philosophy reinforced by evil power. And do you know what Paul did in Ephesus? He went for it, head on. And there was a certain sense in which he broke that power because thousands of people broke free from it. And churches were planted all over the area. This is the dynamic, by the way, if I could just use an aside, which we sometimes call revival. That's an aside for you to think about. Now, of course, Epaphras got caught up in this great conversion and salvation. He went back to Colossae, as we said. Eight or ten years passed. Paul had never been to Colossae. Epaphras comes to him and said, yeah, I planted the church, I've done my best, but we're in a bit of trouble. And do you know what the trouble was? The trouble was kickback. Because the philosophy, the religious ideas that Paul had challenged in Ephesus were also present in all the other regional cities, like Colossae, and in his absence, they had been coming back into the church a little bit. And Paul's alarm bells were ringing. Aha, I've got to help the church not go down the wrong track. Have you ever noticed there's a difference between the church making big gains in the short term and holding them in the long term? You can't hold the gains in the long term unless you secure the foundations in the short term. And so we come to this very intriguing passage, which we're going to read in just a moment. And Paul's been building up to this all the way through the book of Colossians. He's now going to identify and specify exactly what he will not tolerate in the church in Colossae. We've had this general build-up, and in the last passage that I dealt with last week, he said, look, verses 6 to 9 of Colossians 2, live in Christ, carry on living in Christ, don't go into human deception, don't go back. What kind of things are they likely to go back to? The things that were evident in their culture, the very things Paul had challenged eight or ten years earlier when he spent two years in Ephesus. Are you with me? It's the background. And so we come to the text. Let's just read it together. And I'm going to propose to you that Paul identifies three things that he's going to say he can't be tolerated in the church. And they're in the three different sections that I'm going to put up on the screen, one by one. The first one is a kind of Jewish legalism. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Now, the next one. This is more about mysticism and spirit worship. 
Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and who and the worship of angels, that's interesting, disqualify you. Such a person goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions in their unspiritual minds. They have lost connection with the head, i.e. Jesus, from whom the whole body, i.e. the church, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. People interested in the spirit world. Then we come to the, th the next section where he changes the tax slightly. And he's now talking about something which he describes as the harsh treatment of the body. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Let's move on to the next slide. So these are three things that he identifies. So Paul is now putting his finger on what the issues are. Three dangers for the church in the first century. Now, We'll, one, we'll work out whether they have any application to us a bit later on. Let's just think what it had an application to them. As the church in Colossae got going, there were people who didn't like it. And they infiltrated the church in order to slow it up and, and take it off track. This happens even in the modern world, by the way. And the first group appear to be the Jews in the area who hated Paul and who hated Christianity because they believed that the Old Testament was the only way to worship God. And so they seem to have got a foothold in the church and said to the church, if you don't follow the Jewish Sabbath, if you don't follow the Jewish New Moon celebration, if you don't follow the Jewish festivals, if you don't follow the Jewish food laws, you're not allowed to eat pork, you're not allowed to eat shellfish, etc., then you can't really be in touch with God. And Paul said, no, 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 no. Those rules, that's the shadow. Christ has come now. We don't need any of those rules. So that was the first thing. But the second thing is a little bit different. People who were interested in the spiritual world but not focused on Christ. Have you ever come across anyone like that? There are hundreds of thousands of people like that in our society. They are really interested in the spiritual world but it's not focused on Christ. And the thing that he identified in Colossae was people who worshipped angels. By the way, that's coming back in. We'll talk about that in a minute. Interested in the spirit world, but not Christ. 
not through Christ. And then thirdly, this extreme self-discipline, the harsh treatment of the, of, of the body. Some people, when they, when, they took, when they got into the religious mode, they got into that very severe mode. Have you come across people who everything about religion is severe? Fasting. We're not sure that marriage is a good idea. We don't like to talk about sex. It's not entirely clean. Tolerable, but not entirely clean. Uh, some things, you know, uh, kind of unclean. You don't want to touch them. You don't want to get involved with them. You know, that kind of mentality. Really extreme self-discipline. Paul described it as the harsh treatment of the body. Now, we haven't got much detail on what those three, how those three things actually worked out in his time, but he identified those three areas. So I want to ask you the question. Can this obscure message to a first century church in an obscure place in Asia Minor have any relevance for us? Some of you are nodding because you know the answer to the question before I even say it. Let's try and make some contemporary applications. Something similar, not identical, but similar. Religious legalism, Paul's great enemy number one, especially as he was dealing with the Jewish people, can be defined as relating to God through rules. Can I just say to you, that is the default position of the human race until we have a revelation of Jesus Christ. That literally is the default position of humanity if they believe in a God, some don't, but those who believe in a God instinctively feel from almost any culture in the world, whether China, whether India, Hinduism, Buddhism, very strongly in Islam, in folk Christianity in the West, there's a feeling the only way we can please God is by obeying rules and getting a pass mark in our final exam. Gosh, it's still an issue. It's still an issue today. Can I tell you one way in which I can define this? I have the privilege of being involved in a, it have been over 30 years now with people towards the end of their life. And many realities come to the surface towards the end of people's lives. Both good and not so good. For those who've truly understood the gospel and lived with Christ, the reality of salvation becomes more transparent even with suffering towards the end of their life and something amazing is happening. I've seen it many times. But for those who had a religious legalism approach, and I've dealt with people like that on many occasions, a great Anxiety and fear and uncertainty accelerates in their mind as the end of life comes because they have defaulted to this position. So Paul challenged that. I'm not going to spend much time on that because we often talk about this sort of area. It appears in the gospel, in the epistles on many occasions. 
Christians can never substitute a trust in the finished work of Christ for an insecure attempt to please a so-called angry God. He's not angry if the finished work of Christ is applied to you. You are at peace with him. That's the beauty of Christianity. Secondarily, what about this interest in the spirit world? Is that evident in our culture today? Some surveys, not big enough surveys to justify an absolute conclusion, but big enough to be interesting, suggest that in the Western world, at least 25% of people actively believe that the position of the stars and their astrological sign influences their destiny in their future on a day-to-day basis and their long-term future. That's one in four people in your workplace. One in four people on your street actually believe that. No wonder there's a multi-million pound industry around astrology and various astrological and associated uh, activities that appears in the national press and in many, many other places, and it's all over the online world. That mysticism is still with us. And the worship of angels is still with us. It's an increasing practice, even though the Bible expressly forbids it. When John fell at the foot of the angel... At the end of the book of Revelation, the angel expressly said not to worship him, but to worship God, because he was actually a creature. The mystical worship of Mother Earth. I noticed something interesting recently, the rise of the Jedism faith based on Star Wars and the belief in the Force. Well, some people are now organizing themselves into a faith. Not surprising. I mean, all these things keep happening. They claim it's very fast-growing, but time will tell. Is this a reality? This is more of a reality than we care to imagine. Let me tell you this story. Not so long ago, I was at a Christian conference, and I met a lady I'd never met her before. I don't even know where she was from. And she was asked to tell her story as why she was at this particular event. And she told the story that I've never heard ever anything like this ever before. She said she and her husband felt called to open up a cafe which she describes as a spirit cafe in which when people come in to receive their refreshments they are offered prophetic insight from the Holy Spirit as a free extra, no charge whoever they are. And what they say as people come in is, no, this is not astrology. We don't believe in that stuff. There's a greater divine spirit who can direct your destiny, who we have access to, and we'd like to uh, share with you things that he might be saying. And she said, we've hardly ever been refused. Obviously, the people drawn to the cafe are drawn to the branding. And what she discovered is a world of people, huge number of people, totally open. But they think it's in some form of the occult or astrology. And it's a form of mission. 
Paul challenged this. We should as well. Now, this asceticism in the ancient world is a little bit different to what we find today because we're a secular world, but there's a new form of extreme self-discipline that's rising in our culture. It's to do with self-improvement, and it rises out of our great interest in diet and exercise and other associated things. By the way, I'm really keen on those things. As of those of you who will have seen me lumbering around different places jogging will, will notice. Some of you are really shocked when you see me on the hill somewhere in Shropshire, as I was yesterday. So I'm all for those things, by the way. But have you noticed how for some people there's a session, a burying of myself in extreme discipline for self-improvement? Not that dissimilar to what Paul was defining when he spoke to the Colossians. So this is a really insightful passage. And Paul's concern was that the Christian church cannot allow any of these three things to enter its culture without extreme danger. So let's think about them again. Can we allow a religious legalism to enter into our culture without extreme danger. We can't do it. And the way it happens is taking our eyes off the cross and not following the power of the Holy Spirit and not listening to the word of Scripture, those three things primarily. Because the cross speaks against legalism. And the Spirit shows us what we should do to obey so we don't have to consult a rule book. And the Scriptures give us the guidance along the journey. It's a constant challenge. But what about this mysticism, this interest in the spirit world? Can we have Jesus and other spirits? Can we say, well, I'll have a little bit of extra. I'll, 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 I'll go to my stars. I'll check you know, what certain personalities in the media who I won't name who have mystical powers, are saying to me today, I'll get my tarot read. I'll have a look at the tea, reads, uh, tea, reading, tea leaves. I'll get my palms read, etc. Some Christians don't have any interest in this. But more than you would realize, are tempted down that road. And so it's important in Christian discipleship to be definitive, a trust in Jesus and the Holy Spirit means a breaking with any trust in any other spiritual influence that's been there in the past or is there in your culture or even in your family. And in this third area of self-discipline, Paul is all for self-discipline. He was a very self-disciplined man. But he didn't want 
our own identity to be buried in the methodologies that try to improve our lives because our identity is in Christ. So we do have to be careful of those challenges as well. So Paul comes really to the crunch in verse 20. Could you give us uh, slide number four again just for a moment, Andy? Verse 20. Here's his plea to the Colossians. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, a reference to demonic forces, as, in, as stated in verse 8, same. Why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? And so it seems fitting to conclude this uh, uh, talk by just going back to the verses just before our passage, which we looked at last week, which is the introduction, but also serves as the conclusion. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So the answer to these things is to keep our eyes extremely firmly on the finished work of Christ and not let anything divert us from it. So what was happening in Colossae appears to me is a kickback from the huge advantage, advances that Paul had made in Ephesus some years before. Those spiritual forces, those adherents, were now infiltrating the church and taking ground back. And that's why passages like this are important for the modern church, because as we advance, spread the gospel, plant churches, develop mission of the church, we can't afford at the same time to become weaker in our fundamental convictions about these matters and particularly about the gospel. And as you look around the church in the UK, there are many, many churches which have become much less sure of their foundations. And as such, they're gradually getting weaker. That's what Paul feared would happen in Colossae. And so occasionally we need to have a reality check and say, no, we don't want to go to religious legalism. We don't want to get involved or interested in the spirit world, generally speaking. And we don't want to go down any self-improvement techniques that become so absorbing they take us away from Christ and they put our identity back in ourselves, that we're going to do it ourselves. And so for that reason, this passage is important for us. Let's stand together. Let me just ask the musicians to return. together.
as John leads us, salvation belongs to our God.